In the Apostle Paul's writing to his spiritual son, Timothy, he talks about the days ahead when people won't want to hear what he has to say. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The metaphor of itching ears describes the, the bent to hear what we want to hear. Hey, just as it was then, so it is today. You can find someone who will teach you what you like, especially with the web at our disposal and algorithms ready to work. Your bias may be easily confirmed. As the protege, Timothy was left to oversee a community of Christians, and Paul has spoken about this to him because of what he has commanded Timothy to do in the previous verses. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Most of us don't mind being exhorted. In the New Testament language, that word exhort most often means to urge someone along and can even have the connotation of comfort. But to be reproved and rebuked? I mean, come on, that's crossing the boundaries of my personal preferences. That's unaffirming. But Paul writes to Timothy that this is exactly part of what God's word should be doing in our lives. Along with teaching us, it, it corrects us for our good leading us to maturity. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, we are not in the book of Timothy, and the Apostle Paul most likely did not write this exhortation, but it warrants our attention because Hebrews is a letter that both encourages and corrects. It is one of the most hope-filled books in the New Testament. At the same time, it has a strong warning for believers, or I should say warnings, plural, not once, not twice. It warns us on five separate occasions. And my read on culture, including the Christian culture of today, is that we can hardly hear the correction part. As I listen occasionally to popular Christian music, it is almost completely devoid of a call to obedience or correction. Now, I don't think this is a coincidence. Artist labels and radio stations often guide or demand that musicians produce the music people want to listen to. And not to do so, you simply don't get a hearing. Let's go to Hebrews 5, verse 11. The writer has just talked to them about the priesthood of Jesus and his connection to a man named Melchizedek. But he interrupts to say a few things. There's a great encouragement coming. But first, a correction. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. One of the ministry paradigms of our church at Central Heights has been the multiplication of leaders. It has been so rewarding over the years to work with the different interns that God has brought to our church. And as I've gotten to know them, many of them have blessed me in different ways. And I want to tell you about one of them. Uh, she was a young adult who was hungry to grow in Jesus. And as I talked with her at different points and we discussed a number of things about Christianity, I was blown away to find out that she had actually not been following Jesus all that long, just a couple of years. Yet her insights, her understanding of the Christian way, her character was so mature. 
It showed me that spiritual maturity is not so much based on time as a Christian, but on a person's engagement to know, hear, and obey. If the desire is there, it doesn't take that long to grow in a healthy way, to be in a place where you can teach and model for others how beautiful Christianity is. After all, God's Spirit is given to help us in this. Just as growth is a reasonable expectation in life, growth is a reasonable expectation in our spiritual life. That's why in our vision statement, we talk about being growing followers of Jesus. And the Jewish Christians here need correction in regards to their lack of growth. In the Christian faith, everyone should have as their goal to mentor, multiply what God has put into them. The Hebrews ought to be teachers but they're stunted in their growth. The writer uses the infant-adult comparison. Think of a young adult, 22 years old, who can't eat solid food yet, but still needs milk, or a 40-year-old, or a 60-year-old. I mean, that wouldn't be right. So we should think it's not right not to grow in our Christian faith. When you think of where you are with God this year in comparison to last, how have you progressed? Would you be open to asking that question to others around you that you trust? Maturity happens around response to God's truth. The writer calls the basic principles of God's revelation to us, his oracles. This is important for us to take seriously. Today we wrestle with the concept of truth and whether there is such a thing. Is it just a social construct? And you have your truth and I have my truth, but there is no objective truth. In Hebrews, we are given a perspective that the teaching of Christ, what we have written down in the Bible, is God speaking to us, oracle. God breathed, spoken to us, and embodied in Jesus. That's objective. That's final authority. And the right here also refers to this as the word of righteousness. It is communication of how to know and live in a right relationship with God. And to be dull of hearing is to be unresponsive to this word. And so it is that we become skilled and mature, not just by mental assent to God's word, but by responding to it in obedience. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to, to distinguish good from evil. Growth and maturity is demonstrated in our ability to discern how to think, how to think through and live right, and, and that happens through constant practice. Think of how our muscles get stronger by consistent training. And as we intake God's word and apply that to the situations of our living day after day, and sometimes it is tricky. Maturity happens as we use God's word as the instrument to discern the right path, avoid the evil, and put the good into practice. And the result is a virtuous life. And Hebrews calls us to account regarding our maturity. First, because God has better plans for us than spiritual infancy. In Hebrews 2, we heard that Jesus is to lead many sons and daughters to glory. And that's the future for sure, but it, it's also for the now for us to be changed from glory to glory in the present, to become more like Christ is the most beautiful thing. So let's grow. Chapter six, verse one. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Hey, we are urged to move forward in our faith. The writer assumes his listeners have at least the basics of faith and they're to move on from these. It is not that these basics aren't still relevant or that they're unimportant. 
It's just that they are a foundation, and foundations are meant to be built upon. Each of these six elementary principles would be particularly relevant to the Jewish Christians. Having the seeds of truth from Judaism, but they become even more developed because of their fullness in Christ. I invite you to catch a podcast which should be posted this Wednesday with a, a fuller discussion of these, but I'll touch on them briefly now, so stay with me. First, we have repentance from dead works. Repentance is to change your mind and to turn from something. And this could include what we might easily recognize as bad things, evil deeds, but also any attempt to live rightly based on our own efforts, which for a Jew would include all the rituals. So first we turn from, and secondly we turn to. We turn to God in faith. It's more than acknowledging God. Faith is to put the full weight of your trust in Him. Think of a child jumping into their father's arms. The two together are the fabric of Old Testament life and are consistently preached as the beginning of Christian faith in New Testament. How does one become a Christian? Repent and believe in Jesus. And as the first two principles are best taken together, so it seemed for many that the ones that follow should also be taken in pairs. Washings and the laying on of hands are, are the next. And again, in a form, these were common to Old Testament life. Cleansing rituals and the laying on of hands to commission, to consecrate, or, or to bless. And in the New Testament, baptism becomes an identity marker with Christ. It metaphorically refers to our initiation into the family of God and speaks of our being filled or immersed with the Holy Spirit. And the laying on of hands is, is now often connected with the impartation of the Spirit, referred to as the blessing of Abraham in Galatians 3.14, and the gifts that the Spirit distributes. Resurrection and eternal judgment here have to do with the end. The Jewish Christians would have believed in this, but in the New Testament we are privileged to know all these things in much greater detail. Even now we experience the resurrection life of Jesus, the one who has pioneered our faith by being the first to rise from the dead physically, so that we know in the end, if, if we are in Christ, we will also be resurrected to new life. If we have physically died, or if we are alive when Jesus returns, we will be changed. We'll be given a new supercharged body, prepared to live in eternity with the one who died for us. And in the end, Jesus will judge the world. Maybe you picked up on that when I read earlier from 2 Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. By faith in Christ, we who believe are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus and spared from condemnation, but there's still an accountability and rewards given out for the good things we have done for him. That sure seems undeserving to me, but if God wants that, hey, I'll take it. He's so gracious. And there's so much more we could discuss about what is called the elementary doctrine. The writer says you should know this and you need to go on from this, if God permits. That seems like a strange thing to say, doesn't it? If God permits? I mean, we've already said spiritual growth is a reasonable expectation for Christians. How could there be a point where God would not permit this to be so? And this leads us to the warning. Verse 4, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have, been tasted, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. 
This is one of the most contested passages of the New Testament. I have pages and pages of notes from differing opinions from Christ-loving people. And some take this as being written to those within the Christian community who were not really Christians. And after all, those chosen by God would become, wouldn't become unchosen, would they? And some take the warning as hypothetical, others as the means to accomplish what God determined anyway. My view, and I could be wrong, it's hard for me to see how this warning and the, all the other warnings in Hebrews should not be taken for real. The writer is genuinely concerned about the trajectory of those he has written to. They could genuinely choose to walk away from Christ. And yes, there might be some mixed into the audience who do not have a genuine faith, but the continual reference to, to the hearers as brothers and sisters and the way the writer includes himself as one of them indicates the words are intended for the majority who are believers in Christ. And the people written to are not called to be born again. They're called to adhere to the salvation they already have. They have repented. They have been enlightened. They've understood salvation is in Christ. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives birth to the new life in Christ. They have journeyed in part in the growth of a disciple digesting the Word of God. They have tasted of the powers to come. As it is said of believers in the Holy Spirit, they've been given a foretaste of the life that is ahead of them. If this was written anywhere else in Scripture, we would say, well, this is a description of those who have come to a fully orb faith in Jesus Christ. But carelessness and neglect, Hebrews chapter 2, hardening of the heart, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, and the failure to progress, what the writer will call slothfulness, Hebrews chapter 6, is a dangerous place a dangerous place to be because over time, with persistence, it can lead to apostasy. The willful, deliberate rejection of Christ from which you cannot return because God will not let you. This is not what God wants, but in falling away, it is like such a person has crucified Christ again and done so to their own harm. They have self-inflicted, holding Jesus up to shame. To fall away is not like a slip. We do not live our lives as neurotic Christians hoping we don't lose our salvation by committing a sin in the moment of weakness. To fall away is willful, deliberate, project, rejection of Christ progressively over time. Think of Peter who, who once rejected Christ in a sense, denied him, and yet was restored to be one of the leaders of the church. This is willful, deliberate, progressive rejection of Christ over time. We've already seen that God has a throne of grace for us to help us when in need. He can and will help us to persevere. Jude says that he is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before God. No one falls away unless they choose to. But it is a position that if not careful, a person can recede to over time. As Grant Osborne in the book of Four Views on the Warning Passages of Hebrews puts it, apostasy starts with basic temptations. So be careful. Here's an agricultural picture of it, verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. In the right way of living, there is a fruitfulness in our lives, not by our initiation and striving, but by simply responding to the grace that God gives. Crops don't make it rain. Productive crops simply respond to the rain that often falls on it. 
and it becomes fruitful as a process over time. But if a crop, having received the rain that often falls on it, receiving what it needed to be fruitful over time, bears no fruit but rather only thorns and thistles, the writer calls it worthless, and in the end, in the agricultural world, it would be burned. To a Jewish Christian, the concepts of blessing and cursing would immediately remind them of faithfulness to God's covenant. God promised blessing to the faithful, cursing to the faithless. Knowing who Jesus is and all that he has provided for us, Son of God who has come to us in the flesh, taking care of our sin, our great leader, our risen, ascended representative, our great high priest and king, was such a great salvation. And to that, they are, we are, called to respond with carefulness, but also confidence. We've got to read on. The worst thing that could happen to us is to only hear the half of what the writer has to say to us in this section so far. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. How could the writer be sure? Because when you experience salvation and grasp the magnitude of mercy and grace that you have received and what it reveals about God, it is most natural to persevere in faith. It accompanies salvation because our security is grounded in the justice and faithfulness of God. When you grasp who God is and how he can be trusted, our confidence can be unshakable. Verse 10, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. Sometimes when we experience hardship, we feel like we deserve better. God, look, look at all I've done for you. Why did I lose my job, my health, my home? And the temptation and difficulty is to believe that God isn't fair or even that God isn't there. And sure, it, it can look bleak. Lack of influence in society, oppression, persecution, others bailing ship, financial loss, criticism, difficulty, disappointment. But you can. You should have hope. To use a sports in, uh, terminology, the game is not over yet. Why are you settling the score in the middle of a game? You don't see the end in the big picture like God does. God is not unjust to see the good you have done motivated for Christ. Now, notice of all the things the writer could have pointed to as good works, it has to do with relationship, with love expressed in service to other brothers and sisters in Christ called saints. So keep it going with full assurance of hope until the end. We'll come back to verses 11 and 12 to reinforce what he has said about the trustworthiness of God, the, the basis for our confidence. Here's the most prominent illustration, the father of Jewish faith, Abraham. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. The story of Abraham gives us a remarkable story of faith in God, a faith to be imitated, and it is referred to again in Hebrews chapter 11. It begins with a call and a promise in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham is to leave his country, his family, his familiarity, language and customs and walk into uncertainty as to where. He's to go to a place yet unidentified but that God will show him. Think of our Afghanistan friends relocating. I mean, this is a big ask and Abraham has to trust but it comes with a promise. God says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And 
and make your name great. Abraham is 75 years old at the time of his leaving, and it takes 25 years for that promise to begin to be fulfilled. His own son, his own son Isaac is born at age 100, but then Abraham is given a big ask again. God tells him to go and sacrifice his son that he had waited decades for. Sacrifice his son at a mountain two or three days, journey away. I mean, doesn't that seem strange to you? I can't imagine how Abraham wrestled with what was asked of him. But God, as he does in our lives, is working on multiple levels that in the moment we often don't understand. We just have to trust. Child sacrifice was not uncommon in pagan religions. Abraham would be showing to God that he believed in God as much as his pagan neighbors believed in theirs. And it would also prefigure what would happen in Christ as God gives up his only son Jesus to be our sacrifice. As Abraham was about to fulfill his obedience, taking a knife to slay his son, God's angel calls out to him not to do it. And then we have these words quoted in part in Hebrews. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. With faith in Christ, you and I are visual exhibits of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, part of his family. This, the, the believers now as many as the sand of the seashore, blessed to be a blessing. Do you think God can be trusted? When it doesn't make sense, when it's hard, should you doubt God? Hebrews doesn't coddle our doubts, but shows us why our doubts should be doubted. And referring again to this story in Genesis 22, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, that's us, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Genesis 22, by myself I have sworn. So that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, God's very presence, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There he is again. There's so much anxiety in our world, a lot of uncertainty, shifting cultural tides, global unrest, personal insecurity around value and gender, inflation, financial pressures, relational trouble. We will all have our seasons of challenge and opportunities to wonder, to doubt. But look again. Look at the God who keeps his promises and whose son has gone before us as our representative before God. Our hope is anchored in that. Back to verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You have reason to believe, to hope, to persevere, to continue to do good and to encourage others to do the same for as long as it lasts here on earth till the end. 
to be intentional about growing in God, hearing the word of God and obeying it, expressing true love by serving others, even in the midst of difficulty, not sluggishly, but with faith and intention, imitating those who have gone before you in faith, to whom God has shown himself faithful, and he will show himself faithful to you. Oh, we are urged to trust him, your promise keeper. As the scripture says, whoever puts their trust in him will never be put to shame.